0: And welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am Dr. Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for the group discussion today. And as usual, I'm joined by Dr. Nigam Aurora. Morning, everybody. Morning, Nigam. Joining us again is Rod Kite, a cannabis and psychedelics attorney, calling in from Mexico. Hello, Rod.
1: Hello, hello. Glad to be here.
0: Well, nice to have you on the show again. And also joining us again is Jocelyn Shelta, Director of Strategy for Headset. Welcome back.
2: What's happening, guys? Happy to be here.
0: Awesome. So, listener, we have a great show for you today for our popular science and non-peer-reviewed stories. We're going to talk about the race to patent psychedelics. And then we're going to go south of the border down Mexico way to talk about the uh, national legalization bill that's set for a vote. We're going to talk about how Virginia and other states should spend their cannabis profits. And we'll d- discuss a story from the Department of Idiotic and Worthless Ideas about banning vaporizer shipments. We will then go into our rapid-fire prior science discussion about the requirements for cannabis product labeling by state, and end with a discussion about how psychedelics work for our science discussion and peer-reviewed research discussion. And you'll want to stay tuned for a new game we're going to play, which is called Guess Which Politician Was High When They Said This? Uh, So you'll have to guess which governor said something really outlandish. Um, I think we'll have a fun time with that. All right. All right. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back with our news and popular literature. Now it's time for us to peruse and discuss some news and popular science articles. This is the non-peer-reviewed portion of the show and away we go. So, our first story is coming out of Vice, and it's entitled The Race to Patent Psychedelics is Just Getting Started. Now, as some of you may know, psychedelics now appear in patent applications for everything from Phyllis Morris e cigarettes to periodontal disease to hair loss to weight loss to food allergies. Um, You know, social media folks are investing. Tim Ferriss has done a lot of heavy lifting in here, you know, organized something like half of the $17 million commitment for the John Hopkins Research Center. But we might want to be concerned about this patent land grab that is warming up in the for profit psychedelics world. Um, you know, what makes this interesting is we're starting to see companies attempt to secure broad patents that could potentially hinder scientific research, could prevent reasonable competition. And so on. And one of the things I, I was hoping the panel could comment on is maybe we've learned some lessons in the cannabis space. And, and you know, R- Rod, I think I kind of want to talk to you a little bit about this. I'm not sure if, you know, your clients have patents or you've worked with some groups that have patents in the cannabis space. I wonder about their enforceability and. What sort of questions should we be asking? I mean, are patents on psilocybin products a Schedule One drug going to be enforceable? I mean, how worried should the average person be or the company be about, you know, this this patent race if they're trying to get into business? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, so so as the article mentioned, uh, this this land grab that we're seeing is is not new with when it comes to biotech or tech or anything else whenever there's something that's sort of new that's this getting attention and a lot of research and development you're going to see um a, a land grab people just trying to get up as much you know get as much of the space um the ip space in this case as they can uh the the issue here is is pretty intriguing you mentioned the the schedule one um status of, of psychedelic um, compounds and when it comes to trademarking that type of ip uh, that can be really problematic. But when it comes to patenting, that is not the barrier. Really what the barrier we see here, well, there's a couple of barriers, but but the primary legal barrier to something being uh, enforceable is whether it's it's truly helpful. And I, I think what a lot of companies are doing is they're throwing in psychedelics either as collateral pieces to a, to a different type of a patent, whether it be a device or an idea, um, or they're also just trying to go ahead and patent Things like extraction uh, methods and processes, different delivery devices, and things like that that may or may not be enforceable. But you know, other than than the the application fee and the legal fees involved, uh, really, what's what's the harm? I think is what they see in just filing an application, hoping that it sticks. And if it doesn't stick, well, maybe uh, maybe they can negotiate some sort of a resolution with the company that they're trying to make it stick against that that, it, that they claim is violating their patent. So I, I think there's not a from, a, from the capitalist standpoint, there's not a lot of downside to this land grab, but that is the problem. And I guess I'll wrap up my comment by saying, you know, I thought Vice summed it up really nicely. It said that um, the experiences that many people have taking psychedelics directly contradict the shift towards ownership, profit, and exclusion. And I think that's why, we're, why it's getting so much attention is because the nature of psychedelics themselves often are in contradiction with this capitalist mindset of, hey, let's just grab it up and and see what sticks and and make as much money as we can.
0: Well, thank you, Rod. That kind of assages my fears a little bit. I always get nervous when I see patents. But, you know, it seems like anytime big tobacco gets involved with anything, it turns heads. And, and Nigam, Philip Morris's DMT vape pen patent. Um, This sounds super interesting. Sounds like it could cause quite a buzz. In a couple of different ways, <laughs> but, but I would be interested in, in sort of, maybe you can unpack this a little bit for us. Like, should we care that Philip Morris has a DMT vape pen? Isn't this great? They have like huge distribution networks. So this could be a good thing for people who want to consume DMT this way. Maybe not so great for public health, but <laughs> we'll, we'll see. What are your thoughts?
3: Well, we need a uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitor in that vape pen too, right? So um, fabulous
0: point. Maybe point. Uh,
3: <laughs> maybe I can consult with Philip Morris to make sure their DMT vape pen works optimally for the consumer. But um, seriously, call me. But more seriously, um, uh, in the in the article that we're reviewing, they they make this point that Philip Morris claims. That No, we're not intending on selling a DMT vape pen, but we are putting a lot of money into hardware for uh, vaping primarily for nicotine. But in general, you know, a lot of these uh, big tobacco companies are like edging towards cannabis as well. So their claim is. We're filing this patent so that in the future, other people can't put DMT in our hardware and profit from it. So I think they're just trying to like, you know, keep their corporate nose clean or whatever with that right. statement. But the reality is later, DMT is legal. If uh, vaping DMT is a accepted form of consumption by some regulatory body, then, yeah, I think Philip Morris would, would probably want to profit from that.
0: Yeah, Philip Morris is probably like we run a clean toxic product that kills lots of people. The last thing we want is something that is associated with therapy or wellness. Um, you, know, you don't want to hit that DMT vape pen and then give up your cigarette habit, right? You don't right? want to
3: like so <laughs> a little risky there, guys.
0: I after I use the vape pen, these elves appeared to me and told me to stop smoking that stuff. So uh, you know I don't use tobacco anymore. Um, that's a little DMT joke. Look it up, folks. Uh, so so Jocelyn, you know. Yeah, I would love to get your I know this probably is not, you know, um, it's not your job to review patents per se, but of all the patents they kind of listed here, psychedelics for weight loss, an LSD disruptor, uh, a personalized psychedelic scent bubble, uh, psychedelics for hair loss and tooth decay. Um Was there any that you really liked or you thought were ridiculous or you're like, I would love to see this develop? Is there anything that sort of was like super interesting to you from the article?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, what's most interesting to me, and I'm going to speak from my own personal experience because um, I've used various psychedelics over the past year. And for me, um, what is most exciting about them for our society as a whole is just kind of Entire point of psychedelics. They really, we've talked about this on the last episode. Um, What psychedelics have done for me is it's allowed me to look at my ego and really get in touch with my inner self. And then, kind of, the things that I was struggling with, I was able to look at more closely and then address. So, that could be anything like weight loss that's mentioned in there. It can be some anxiety. It could be some childhood trauma. It could be anything, right? And the whole point of psychedelics, in my opinion, not from a recreational standpoint, but from a medicinal standpoint, is what our society needs as a whole, which is waking up to who we are as an individual so that we can then become a more productive member of society and be in less pain and be living in a more peaceful state. So for me, um, whatever thing you may be dealing with, uh, psychedelics have for me personally, it's been a wonderful way to kind of get in touch with myself and understand what those things are, and be able to look really closely at them, and essentially dissolve my ego to be able to then you know address those things um, head on. So, you know, that's why I'm most excited about them.
0: Excellent. Uh could I jump well, in
1: on on about on, on? Yeah, um, please and, go just, ahead, Ron. You know, to, to follow up with, with what Jocelyn was saying, I think for me the thing that that was the most interesting was this LSD disruptor. And at first, I read it, I thought, well, this is really cool. How many times have you seen someone like at a at a dead show or something, and they're like, oh man, I need, give me a Valium, man, I need a Valium, um, to, because to calm their trip down. And you think, oh well, this could really control if someone's Really having a bad trip, or the trip needs to end for a reason. You you, you bam you, you you do the disruptor. But also to Jocelyn's point, really the the main focus uh, in the therapy I think is with this ego dissolution piece. And sometimes I know personally some of my most difficult trips I probably would have popped a you know an LSD disruptor, and it turns out that that I really needed to work through that trip, and that's where the benefit came was was working through that hard and hard piece. And and dissolving the ego and addressing the issues that I needed to address and coming on the other end. So while I, while I think that's a it's a fabulous device or or, or idea at least, um, it it also probably needs to be used in a way that, that that's focused towards towards what we think psychedelics are probably best used for, which is this ego dissolution for therapy.
0: Great point, uh, and. And speaking, you know, we need to move on to our next article and head south of the border down Mexico way. <laughs> and I, and I want to know, Jocelyn, are we going to fall in love with this nation's cannabis policies? You know, it's, you know, as, as some people may have been following, Mexico has been trying to legalize cannabis nationally. Um, and it's had a lot of several revisions, some setbacks, some advancements, um, and it's looking really promising. And, you know, you know, Headset does some very interesting things in the cannabis space in the United States. I imagine there's some lessons learned there. So uh, I'd love just to kind of get your thoughts. You know, if you could get the ear of one of these senators, um, what would be some of the other things you talk to them about national legalization of cannabis?
2: So... I think one of probably the biggest things that um, from a government standpoint that they're looking at is just the economic upside and benefit that it's going to bring. And so we actually just did an analysis um, or some forecasting for what we thought the first year would do. And we're looking at around 850 million, um, which has been very interesting, because if you think about California, um, you know, we're a state of, what, 40 plus million people. Um, Mexico is, I think, around 76 million for the adult population, Um, And in California, I think we're 29 million for adult population. So 21 plus. So when we're thinking about that, California, we did 1.4 billion in our first year of recreational sales. So for Mexico to be doing around, you know, 850 million. um, But with the larger population, there's a lot of things that we need to be considering. Um, And so I think some of the things that you know, are going to kind of dictate what the, what the country does is going to be around the illicit market, right? That was one of the things that really impacted us here in California is our very burdensome illicit market. Um, also the rate at which, you know, they're going to have various, um, uh, policy or licensing legal, um, pricing, right? The costs of flour in itself is going to dictate because the costs there are going to be much lower than they are here in California. So that's obviously going to dictate what the country does as a whole, um, but overall, for just from an economic standpoint, I mean, it's going to bring in significant revenue to the country. So $850 million is is what we're thinking. That's
0: awesome, Justin. Let me ask you a silly question. Um, you know, in this article from Marijuana Moment, entitled Mexican lawmakers circulate amended marijuana legislation bill that's set for a vote. One of the things it mentions is that it seems a little, I don't know, it seems a little weird. You wouldn't see this in another U.S. state is... An adult would be able to purchase and possess up to 28 grams of cannabis, not clear if that's flowers or product or extracts, but of cannabis, and cultivate up to six plants for personal use. Do you think, uh, did your projection take into account home cultivation as cutting into the profits of big cannabis companies, or is that just like a negligible factor in people cultivating cannabis. This is something I hear all the time from what I might call fake millionaires in the cannabis space where like we can't allow home grow because you know we won't make enough money. I'm like, man, if you have to compete with old Smokey Joe's cannabis, like, <laughs> like you have got another issue with your supply chain. But um yeah, just kind of your thoughts on the the, the home cultivation personal use. It seems so uh forward thinking in some ways. Um
2: Yeah, no, that's a great point. You know, we didn't factor that into any of our calculations or forecasting
0: yeah oh okay cool yeah so i, I get like i guess that's my answer now and that's it <laughs> now now rod you up and moved to mexico uh you know to work down there on issues related to cannabis you know i'm very interested to what you can share um your insights to this article um you know what. What did this article get right? What did it get wrong? Do you think this is good coverage? You know, um, what, what can you tell us about, um, for the listener who may not be familiar with what's going on in Mexico, suddenly we have this news that there's a bill and they're going to legalize it nationally. Um, are you excited? Are you about ready to pop open a bottle of champagne? Or are you like the work's just starting?
1: Um, well, Ma Cerveza, I think, is the appropriate um, phrase there. But, um, but you know, this is one of those things that's happening suddenly over five years or so, and and the 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 reason that the the Congress and they have a, a multi chamber, two chamber Congress, just like in the U.S. There's the Senate and the and the um, the the deputy, the, the lower house, which is the um, is the, the Chamber of Deputies. And the reason that they're considering this bill is not so much because of all the public support. In fact, it's, it's sort of strange, it's sort of the flip side of the United States where we don't have cannabis legalization in the United States, but we have a, a, a majority, perhaps even a supermajority majority of, of adults who want it. In Mexico, it's the opposite. You, in some polls say two thirds of Mexicans don't want cannabis legalization, but yet this bill is, is gonna, get, it's gonna pass. And the reason for that is because the Supreme Court ordered the Congress to do that. In Mexico, when the Supreme Court rules on a particular issue three different times uh, in the same way, then that um, then that becomes the law. And in this case, the Supreme Court found that the Mexican constitution, uh, specifically the right to the uh, free development of the personality, which I think is a great piece of constitution, we don't have that, um, decided that that uh, afforded the right for to people to, to use uh, cannabis and so the it, it has given congress i don't even know several different deadlines over the years to make this happen and the, the most recent deadline uh got kicked back to uh april 30th and so that's why we're seeing a flurry of articles right now uh, it's gonna happen because it has to happen uh the the ruling party moreno which is the, the, the has the majority in both houses and is also the executive branch the president are all on board with it, and so the devil's really in the details. And to get to the point of your question, you know, is this going to happen all at once? Are we excited? Of course, we're super excited about this. The law is going to is going um, to happen, and it looks to be, by and large, a good law. Every law has its problems. Um, but the the regulations, which are really going to govern the rollout and how this thing looks in practice, could take anywhere from 18 to 24 months. So I don't think it's, it's going to be like, okay, one day uh, weed is not legal and the next day it is and it's everywhere in cafes and dispensaries. That's not going to happen. It's going to be that this takes time and rolls out and probably a lot of changes will happen during that time period.
0: Thank you, Rod. That makes a lot of sense. So it's just not... You know, it's not just going to fall down from the sky and everyone's going to be selling cannabis. Um, there's going to be some lag time. Um, yeah, definitely some
1: lag time. Yeah.
0: So, so, Nigam, you know, looking at this article, you know, you're an industry veteran. You know, this is not the first, you know, you work in different markets in, in, in North America. You know, cannabis is a substance that is, you know, considered by some authorities to be a narcotic. Um, You know, in the United States, it seems weird that the Drug Enforcement Agency has a role in in regulating, you know, adult-use cannabis. They don't exactly regulate alcohol. But, you know, there's these weird, you know, sometimes it seems unclear who's responsible here. So one thing I want to, you know, I guess I have two questions. One is, who's going to be in charge of cannabis in Mexico? Is is it going to be their equivalent of the DEA? Is it going to be the FDA? Who kind of seems to be the powerhouse here? And my second question is, what sort of thing are they favoring here? Are they favoring like, you know, big vertically integrated facilities? That are going to like mandate indoor cultivation like we do in the U.S. Like, please destroy the environment by law. You have to grow indoors. Um, so is it like big vertical in- and <laughs> like what what is going on here? So my two questions for you: Who's going to be kind of responsible for running the program,
3: and what type of operators are they favoring? totally so and and um i'll lean on rod here because he's on the ground so rod if i'm saying anything incorrectly please please share i'm just going from the article so they say in the article that the national committee against addiction is actually in charge of these regulations i thought that was kind of interesting and i'm going to read this quote where they explain it it says given that the proposed legis- legislation would open the legal market for cannabis a substance considered to be a narcotic in international treaties signed by our country, it is essential that the law issued for this purpose has a clear and defined public health approach. For this reason, it is essential to modify the approach that predominates the bill, which considers cultivation of cannabis as a means for economic growth and community development, which, if maintained like this, would encourage production and commercialization, neglecting public health contrary to the guiding models that these communities intend to build so that really stuck out to me for a lot of reasons so you know Jolson was just sharing with us uh some insights from what headset does so headset is this awesome cannabis data analytics market view company and so they already have an estimation of 850 million dollars for Mexico in year one but yet we have the governmental authority saying it's not about economic development now I'm going to say a couple more confusing things right after this so um, you know uh, on one hand, I appreciate that where we've seen this other thing in the U S and this other thing with the public Canadian markets and all this, all this crazy stuff where it's like clearly and Jayhan, I think we're going to talk about like a labeling, uh, article for cannabis later. Clearly there's a lot of gaps in like public health, understanding of medicine, all this stuff for cannabis in uh, the other parts of North America. And it's been more about Put weed in a bag that's not moldy and sell it. No offense to anybody. That's a, there's a lot of that happening. You know, some people do. You know, higher bar stuff, and I applaud them. But we're still kind of building this thing, and there's a lot of people are out for profit. So I like seeing that they're health focused in Mexico, but it's also they're being a little bit harsh on the narcotics international treaty thing. The other thing that plugs in that kind of goes the opposite way is that and and rod correct me if i'm wrong it seems like they're favoring vertically integrated operators like they want people who can do the whole supply chain um which like once again for equity for community um you know people from the community people that were harmed by the drug war people in indigenous populations they they don't have millions and millions and millions of dollars to start a huge vertically integrated business it would be more amenable to them i would assume to start a grow or a retail shop or a manufacturing shop or whatever. So I have a couple more thoughts, but I don't, I don't want to hog the mic. Well,
1: I'm happy to respond to that vertical integration piece. You know, so what we've seen is that of course, the big companies with, with the millions and millions of dollars come in and, and I'm sure that there's been lobbying efforts um, behind the scenes. Hey, wait a second. We need a vertical integration license because this is what we plan on doing. And by the way, we can help you out in all these different ways. Um, you know, fill in the blanks for these big, these big companies. Um, and, you know, what I've seen, and I, I've um, presented legislation, cannabis legislation to other foreign governments, and you go in, you have this bright idea of this wonderful, beautiful world with this perfect cannabis legalization that you've thought through, and you walk in and it's like, show me the money. You know, wh- where where is the money? And there, I think there's a, a, a concern, and this is conjecture, but that these Small-time grows and small-time shops are not going to actually be able to to work out, and certainly not produce the the revenue uh, that that they're wanting. But whereas a whereas an international um, you know cannabis company with millions of dollars, and there are several, uh, could come in and bam, show the money really really fast. Uh, and I think that that's that's what we're seeing. But you know the the primary pushback to the current bill has been on these equity pieces where. Whereas it, it, there used to be a specific percentage of, of licenses that had to go to these um, indigenous populations, um, that uh, now that's been removed, and it's just there's a quote unquote priority, whatever that means. And of course, that's a a flexible word that can be used to mean ten percent or forty percent. We don't know, uh, but th- but I think that all, that gives room for these. Huge vertical integration shops to muscle their way in, and, and unfortunately, I think that's what we're going to see. Certainly, there's a place for them, uh, but I think just like most other places, we're going to see uh, big companies controlling the the reins here.
3: One one other thing, Rod, if I could just ask you, um, there were a couple other tidbits in this article that caught my attention. One was that they they listed six license categories. Um, including research, which I love to see, uh, during my time in the industry in Massachusetts, uh, I was on the ground advocating for the research license and they have that there. Now, several other States have it now. They're not being utilized that well, in my opinion, a lot of States, but it's cool to have it on the books a dedicated research license. Right? So I noticed that was, was on the, was one of their categories there. So I'm curious if you know anything about that. And then the other thing was they had a dedicated marketing license, I thought that was so interesting that, like, in the U.S., we have this whole thing with the uh, plant touching an the ancillary, right? So you can right. be a cannabis PR firm, and you're an ancillary business. You don't need a license. But in, I saw that in the article, and I was just curious if you know anything about that.
1: Well, first, to the research point, I agree with you. You know, is it going to be utilized very very much? Oh, we don't know, but it's good to, that it's there, and it probably be utilized some. But with the marketing piece, I think what these licenses mean is yet to be determined. A lot of it's going to be what the final bill is, but more importantly, what the regulations are. So does marketing really refer to an ancillary business like a like a branding company that never touches the flower? Or does that just mean the company uh, that, the, the, you know, say so you manufacture, but you also want to um, put it out in the retail market? Is that is that more what that means? Your plant touching, but, but they, they look at the market a little bit differently. Mm. And I think that that remains to be seen.
0: Yeah, I would love to see more partnerships in this space. You know, there's these proto-mandated relationships, right? These prototypical things like you have to be partnered with a university. Great. Now universities have to do cannabis research. They just can't pretend that, um, you know, it it doesn't exist. Um, You know, the other thing I think is like with these indigenous communities, I have to think that there's a huge economic opportunity being missed here by not granting license to indigenous communities i mean think about the cannabis tourism market the psychedelic tourism market like there's people are getting more and more conscious about where they want to spend their money do they want to buy cannabis from the coca-cola of the world or that like artisan cultivated product from the hills of oaxaca where they're going to a resort or they're going to stay in a place and it's part of like a holistic approach to supporting economies and it's sustainable and so you know, maybe it's not too late. You know, if this vote doesn't pass in, in the coming future, maybe there's a chance for these indigenous communities to be like, no, like if you're going to be a big company, you have to have a certain partnership, you know, with these indigenous communities and fund these local sustainable efforts. Um, and, you know, Rod, since this is, you know, right in your backyard, I want to give you uh, one, uh, you know, chance to to give a comment before we move on. But I just want to read a little quote that, um that made me smile from this article, and it was uh, from this this article from uh, Marijuana Moment. was, in September, a top administration official was gifted a cannabis plant uh, uh, on the Senate floor, and she said she'd be making it part of her personal garden. I want to say, slow down there, Senator. The law hasn't passed yet, but that's pretty cool.
3: Um, <laughs> Contrast, right? Contrast what Contrast. we see over here, so
0: yeah it's a beautiful quote so um i i really think that's a cool quote and it's just a sign of like i just love things that are destigmatizing, you know and and we've heard those the the, the rumor of the sheriff and mendo who used to everyone was confused of how many plants you could grow so he just grew them out from his front lawn (laughs) it's like this is what a legal grow looks like (laughs) um sort of a mythological figure these days but rod you know um Any final comments um, on this news out of Mexico?
1: Yeah, well, just exactly to your point about the destigmatization and uh, the more relaxed approach to it. One of the things I love the most about it is the the, the law is going to allow for public consumption. So it's not going to be too precious or it's too dangerous or it's too weird and out there. Let's put it behind doors or only in your personal space. If if you're out in in a public park and and you want to light up a joint, you're going to be able to do that. And I think that's great.
0: Awesome. So seconded. Yes. Uh, and uh, hearing no dissent, the motion passes. <laughs> um, so we're going to move on to our next story, which you know dovetails nicely with some of the things we've been talking about, about equity, about licensing um, and, and revenue generation. Right. So we're talking about patents in the psychedelic and cannabis space, we're talking about new economic opportunities in other countries looking at national legalization. An interesting article um, from outlawreport.com. Again, this is not a science article. This is, again, popular literature here, non peer reviewed sources. Um, but they entitled an interesting article uh, How Should Virginia Spend Its Cannabis Profits? And we're seeing this come up over and over and over again, you know, and in places like New Jersey, uh, which recently legalized adult use is devoting 70% of its taxes to quote municipalities with the highest marijuana arrest and poverty rates, Um, which is very interesting. You know, Colorado Nevada and Oregon currently use some of their taxes for education. Um, uh, You know, some taxes include cannabis system, administrative costs, substance use disorder programs, criminal justice reform, economic development, and more. But what's interesting in Virginia, uh, the ACLU basically in a joint letter said that they want taxes to you know, really support the cannabis equity reinvestment fund. So right now, uh, I believe as the bill is written, the legislation directs 40% of the taxes from cannabis to pre-K for at-risk kids. It's kids like three to four years old um, to give them kind of a head start. 30% to SURF, which is the... Um, cannabis equity reinvestment fund, and 25% to substance use disorder programs, and 5% to just, you know, general public health fund. Um, So, you know, and and thinking about, you know, 70% going to serve, this might be, you know, a really good idea, because there are historically marginalized use, those impacted by the drug war and and frankly almost anything is better than where the money usually goes which is you know behind closed doors in a smoke filled room where politicians decide the fate of our neighborhoods <laughs> so i think having a plan in place um is interesting and so so Nigel, i'd love to get your thoughts on this i mean it seems like you know with things in life it's always better to focus on one thing to get something done, versus like we're going to give five percent of our taxes to every organization and department so that they can effectively do nothing. Uh, so I kind of like this push to say, you know what, we're going to give a majority of the funds to one specific mission, one specific cause that does share the mission of other things. So like you know, the the um the equity reinvestment fund definitely shares sort of a similar mission of the pre K programs, which is to help, you know, marginalized folks get a chance, get jobs, have, uh, you know, gainful employment, things like that. Um, So yeah, I'd love to get your thoughts on how to use state taxes, you know, you know, no, no ideas off the table. Should we, you know, put it into just education? Should it all go to substance use? Um, Your response, please.
3: So uh, I can't speak about this without first going up to like a 30 or maybe like a 70,000 foot view. So I just want to make some comments and I'm going to try to keep them brief to not offend the, I don't know, whoever doesn't like what I'm about to say. But so um, one thing is that I don't really like is this thing where like there's this concept of syntax, right? Cigarettes, alcohol, brothels, whatever's out there that you can like do and tax legally in your jurisdiction, right? So I just never really appreciated cannabis being in that bucket. It's not the same as alcohol. It's not poison. You can't die from withdrawal from it. You can't die from it at all. It's not like cigarettes. It's not addictive and, you know, uh, manipulative, you know, decades, decades, decades long history of like covering up uh, health concerns. And I, I don't need to elaborate. I think you guys get the point that to me and to a lot of reasonable people, cannabis is medicine, uh, cannabis is a positive thing on the earth. So just putting it in the syntax bucket where then it's like mandated or expected that we have to cure the ills of society with the cannabis money, it just, I don't really appreciate that. So that's something off the bat. The other thing that it is, uh, and I'm not trying to cast the net too wide, but we pay a lot of taxes and these taxes go to a lot of things that on an individual level, often we, d- we don't get the choice to say like, where is it going? Right. So maybe I think that might let's put cannabis on the shelf. There's no cannabis in the next 20 seconds of what I'm going to say. Let's say that instead of my taxes building bombs, my taxes were like going into uh, childhood education. Great. I would love that you know, community support, infrastructure, uh, economic growth of our country. I love all that stuff. That's great. But if you're putting into like oppression of marginalized people or like military building, it's, it's hard for me to agree with that. So there's already this decoupling between like reasonable people's preferences and like where tax money goes. Okay. So I'm going to get, I'm going to come down. So I was at 70,000 feet. I'm going to come all the way down. Right. So about this Virginia thing, um, yeah, investing in youth, uh, investing in marginalized youth, I think that's great. I I think that's great. And what I would posit is, sure, spend the cannabis money on that, but maybe spend some of just the normal tax money on bringing up the community uh, and maybe listen to what community members – Need in that area, you know. So, anyways, I'll get get off my soapbox for a second. But you did ask me, so I had to. I tell you, I I think think. I think
0: it's a good point to remind people. Like, well, while we're changing the tax structure of things, why don't uh, you know, uh, seventy percent of all speeding tickets in Virginia go to support these causes? All the, you know, like all the money that law enforcement generates from all their stupid tickets and stuff. Like, hey, how about uh, seventy percent of that goes back to the community that they're finding it from? Um, yeah. There's lots of lots of ways here. It, one thing that, it, you know, again, you can only think about sometimes yourself, but, you know, gosh, like a sin, a sin tax paid for some of my graduate work, a tobacco tax, tobacco grant paid for some of my endocannabinoid research. And that's one thing I think is always kind of missing is, can, is would it be possible to combine these things and say like, okay, you know, can we support much needed people trained to be cannabis? experts to be cannabis researchers i mean there's so many fake cannabis educators and cana this and ecs binology doodles that like i'm just like what what is this that i'm seeing on clubhouse and social media where people are just like stamping themselves like printing out a diploma at home and, and i'm like man we could just Imagine we took that money and we had an army of cannabis and endocannabinoid scientists just like you want to get in this space you want to get paid by cannabis funds to be a cannabis researcher like that would be pretty cool and, and you know to wave a magic wand in a perfect world but you know it's uh, it, I think these are important discussions to have and maybe there'll be some sort of like you know contact high from this where if cannabis is fixing the ills of society maybe other taxes you know will similarly, you know, fall suit other tax structures. Um, but Rod, I want to give you a chance. Um, you know, you're down with boots on the ground in Mexico, looking at how they're getting ready to do things. Um, you know, do you think this is something that will pass in Virginia? Do you think there'll be lawsuits here? Do you think the, the industry will support this sort of uh, where the money goes from, you know, the revenue generated by their businesses? Um, what are your thoughts?
1: Um, the answer to all that is yes, but before I, I respond, I think I, 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 I noticed when Niggum um talked about, about the syntax, my brain, I guess, being a lawyer and language is my tool and all that, I, I thought he was talking about first for a brief second syntax. That's why in TAX I was like, man, well, he's gonna go to some deep, like, dialectical <laughs> piece about <laughs> and I was, oh, syntax, and I, you know, I hadn't thought about it that <laughs> way. I Sinners, ag- puritanical, <laughs> sinner tax, yeah, yes. but mm-hmm. but you know, I completely agree with that, that front, you know, from a um, you know, lumping in marijuana with tobacco and alcohol and firearms and all that thing is crazy because it is a medicine. But, um, you know, to, to circle back down and, and come down from the, the 70,000 foot to, to Virginia, I do think it's going to pass. I think, you know, what is the industry going to get behind? I think the industry tends to get by behind what's going to pass. So I don't know. I haven't heard anything specific about um, this, that or the other. Personally, you know, on the one hand, it's really hard to say, well, you know, at-risk pre-K kids shouldn't get a lot of funds. I mean, absolutely they should. By the same token, you know, our entire history of, of cannabis prohibition has been around, um, you know, based on racism and and putting down people of color. And so, you know, as we're opening up the markets and people um, who are, are are white and privileged are often and, and usually the ones that are benefiting from this it seems just right to balance the scales that surf should be getting or something like surf uh, i'm not endorsing surf specifically i don't even know that much about it but but a social equity group should be getting these funds and you know maybe monitoring it maybe reporting you know how much are you able to invest can you show us some stats on how that helped you know we're not, i'm not sure and i'm not here to advocate one way or, or another specifically to to aid with social equity, but to me, as these states come online, hell, as as Mexico comes online, I, I think the social equity piece is crucial.
0: Great, great point. Um, I, I agree that the social equity thing is a great point. You know, and I like it because it makes us think for a second about you know the industry and where it's headed and what the industry has had to overcome and, and how far these laws, regulations, standards, the industry, and what it's faced over the last hundred years in this country. Um, so again, I think it, it's 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 great that we're having these discussions and that there's groups out there who have the means to fight this. And, you know, hey, you know, something has to cure all the ills of society. And, you know, if it's cannabis, great. What a great, what a great chapter in history.
1: Cultural um, medicine, how
0: about that? <laughs> So now that we were done talking about good ideas, I think it's time we transition to talking about stupid ideas. So, um, you know, I know, Rod, you're familiar with this story, but (laughs) as you're quoted in it, um, but the Marijuana Business Daily, you know, I I couldn't resist this one. Um, New law banning vaporizer shipments takes effects this year, impacts cannabis businesses. So the U.S. Postal Service will be prohibited from shipping vaping products starting this summer because of a new law. So this to me, you know, this is basically from the preventing online sales of e-cigarettes to children act, but it turns out that e-cigarettes is this like weird term that, you know, there's also vaporizers, like, you know, medical devices used to heat and deliver products. Um, you know, there's a volcano, there's packs, these things, you know, use herbal flower, the inflorescence, the, you know, from cannabis. It, it's, it's hard for me to believe that these are being banned when like People ship weird stuff, um, you know, in the mail all the time. People ship inflated balloons and like, you know, uh, you know, stamps on a box of candy. You know, they can you can toss a frisbee in the mail. People have shipped miniature donkeys, kids, like antique pianos, pets, um, Lego Star Wars displays, even diseases can be shipped in the mail. Like if you're at a lab, so like you know, guns, like like there's like the stuff you can ship in the mail is ridiculous. And why are we drawing these arbitrary lines over vape cannabis, like vape pens? Like it just, I mean, I could understand, oh, no lithium batteries. Got it. Can't do that. Then how are we going to get our cell phones um, to the distributors? Like this just seems, uh, you know, it seems odd to me because it's not like they're shipping potentially the product in the mail, right? Like it's not... You know, correct me if I'm wrong here, Rod, but it does not seem like they're shipping the oil, the drug. It's just a battery and a heating element, uh, essentially. Um, am I well, missing something things- here? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Am I missing something here?
1: No, th- this law is, is, is wildly overwritten and, and over inclusive. Uh, you know, what, what it's saying is that uh, an ENDS device, that's an acronym for electronic nicotine delivery system. Uh, now includes delivery systems that don't deliver nicotine or tobacco or anything else they just deliver a substance and, and a, a device or a component of that device whether it be the liquid or itself or the battery or the the empty cart or, or whatever it is is all now folded into this and it's hard to understand what the deal is you know as you said there's all sorts of crazy stuff that can be shipped to the mail why this focus on on vape and the, the only thing I can come up with is it just, it's, this sounds dramatic, and I, I hate to even say that, but it, it's sort of a war on vape. And, you know, we had the, uh, I think we might have talked about this in the last time I was on, but, you know, th- there's been this issue um, about vapes and all the, the the deaths with the vitamin E acetate and, and whatnot. And I think that just, you know, really freaked people out. And on top of that, there's been a lot of, you know, you see a lot of youth using nicotine devices, you know, and, and trying to prohibit sales to youth of nicotine devices. But in order to sort of cure those ills, the, the this law is, is so sweeping as to um as, as to kind of so, potentially bring down a, a big chunk of the of the vape industry.
0: You know, and it's funny you mentioned they are freaked out by vitamin E acetate. When that was a regrettable substitution that occurred because it's like, oh we know the risks of propylene glycol. We know what happens when it's overheated Instead of like making better vape pen products, they banned that or got rid of it or phased out then MCT oil. And then finally they got to something that's like, hey, we know nothing about vitamin E acetate, therefore it must be good for you. It's never <laughs> been tested or used this way, so let's go ahead and do that. Um, so, you know, it's like, yeah, you guys kind of regulated this problem and now you're going to use the same type of thinking to get yourself out of it. And meanwhile, uh, Nigam uh, I, you know it's, it's still legal to send it so I'm sending you a box of uh, live bees and some radioactive material it's all legal to send you <laughs> um, as as maybe uh, you know uh, some scorpions and cremated remains um, so you know just letting you know that those are some things you can still send in the mail um, so if you get a vibrating box from me it's it's <laughs> not a cell phone it's a <laughs> Well, it's certainly not a vape card after,
3: you know, May 30th or whatever. No,
0: no. But, uh, you know, if any of you are on my holiday mailing list, you're getting a box of bees,
3: I think.
1: Make your own (laughs) honey.
0: Yeah, grow your own honey. Uh, I got to think like this is, there's going to be some action to fight this. I mean, God, this is just like the post a nut service. Like, I don't know. Well, sometimes I'm just I don't know what to do with this information. <laughs> there
3: are, you know, I couldn't help but think. So I, I agree with a lot of what Rod said. It's um, it's a little bit broad. <laughs> you know, it's a little bit of a broad <laughs> thing they're tossing out there. Um, but I couldn't help but think. You know, I like to think about these things. There's there's layers. There's the I often think about this concept of flipping the coin over. So let's do this exercise, right? So what's on the side of the coin that this article is about? Um, there are the people selling uh, vape hardware through the mail and uh, be that a nicotine containing um, substance or be that a maybe CBD or, or lesser regulated uh, cannabinoid type substance, whatever, right? Um, and they're talking about all this stuff. So let's flip the coin over though. What about all the people who used to sell uh, cigarettes and cigarette like supplies that, you know, the corner store, the gas station, the tobacco store, the outlet, whatever the vape shop there's all these vape shops. Um, well, you can't mail this stuff anymore. looks like they're going to get more foot traffic for the people who really want it. Or what about, um, some other just, uh, you know, interests, maybe it's, uh, maybe state by state, um, places that sell CBD vapes at a licensed cannabis shop is going to get more business or whatever so I'm just kind of I couldn't help when I read this it's just so like just halfway heinous that I couldn't help but think like why like what's on the other side of the coin what interest is behind this because I don't want to be cynical but I feel like the maybe it's like the COVID thing maybe it's like the Trump era COVID thing that makes me even more cynical but it's just hard to believe that they're looking out for for my public health or for you know young the the thing is it's and I i don't want to be harsh to say it maybe it is easier for a young person to order a jewel through the mail somehow um versus like going and buying it but at the same time youth use of tobacco alcohol drugs uh just other irresponsible things it's been a problem it's it's probably going to be a problem, you know. Yeah. Now, now they'll go to the corner store. Now they'll get some older kid to buy it for them. Maybe it's easier than dealing with showing your ID. Yeah, they don't the have website. to commit
0: mail and identity fraud online. Yeah. Like yeah, it's yeah. much, so, it's, they can just go sit outside a store. It's it's um,
3: definitely out. It's definitely out there, though. I, I definitely am not. I, I'm I mean, not, it's definitely yeah, out there. I'll it, just leave it at that. It's definitely
0: out there, but I mean, it, it, I understand we want to have guardrails to protect public health. I'm absolutely in favor of this, but sometimes stuff is just over the top. Like what do you need to get away as a teenager to order this stuff online? Well, you need to somehow be have a fake ID. You also need to have a computer with internet access. <laughs> you also need to have a place to send it and a way to pay for it. Like I didn't have a credit card when I was a teenager. Like, you know, so I mean It might show up on your parents' credit card slip. So there's a lot of steps there and missing components to, like, was our kids just let PayPal just give out credit card accounts to any old kid that registers, like, oh, I see you play high school football. You qualify for a special card. Like, you know, I think that there's... I wouldn't even know, and this is maybe why I didn't, you know, use nicotine products as a kid, is I didn't even know... I wouldn't know how to even order them online. Like, it seems so... It already seems like there's a lot of barriers to getting the market online, but maybe you know, maybe this is a consequence of something we don't see where there's a lot of companies that aren't playing by the rules. But the CBD companies that would ship a vape pen to a non-qualified individual, they're not regulated anyway, and they'll continue to do so. It's like trying to regulate those online pharmacies that exist in other country. It's like you can pass all the laws you want to come down on the good operators. It's not going to affect the bad operators. The bad people will be outside the law
3: jayhan that reminds me of one other thing when i was doing the the coin flipping exercise they mentioned an article uh that um ups and fedex have said they'll follow the same rules as the fed as the the united states postal service but they did call out private shipping companies like dhl would not have an issue so on the other side of the coin maybe it's like the local corner shop that's willing to sell these things and this DHL is going to make some money. So Also doing? in the news,
0: yeah. DHL is hiring. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
1: exactly. But, but you're exactly right. I mean, I think this all goes to the, to this. it's really, it's not a vape ban, which I, I get hysterical calls all the time. You know, they're banning vapes. It's it's a supply chain chain disruption. And exactly. So there's going to be DHL or maybe some smaller company that would love to compete with FedEx that says, oh, here's our opportunity. So we're going to step up and we're going to ship vapes and we'll comply with all the requirements. Um, and then again, you know, as you said, Jayhan, and I hadn't even thought about that, you know, in some ways in, in an effort to make things more difficult uh, to get nicotine products to to youth, maybe it's going to make it easier because you just get a fake idea, you walk to the corner shop. If they say yes, great. If they say no, you walk to the next corner shop. You're not going through all the steps. So we'll, this is going to be... I think we'll see some modifications over the next 18 to 24 months, but it's going to be a, a pretty bumpy ride um, until then.
3: Rod, we're going to have a whole new generation. It's like, I think these uh, these kids these days are just website 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 they're going to have to get used to walking corner store to corner store to corner store right big so, yeah, change, never mind change. Never mind. it's like it's like a flashback there
1: right i kind of remember it's like days. 80s flashback right? i remember that yeah. in those day's a little bit
0: so just just to sum it up so what does this thing actually do it prohibits the mailing of non-nicotine devices to consumers through the US postal service it triggers burdensome and illogical compliance requirements for mailing through common carriers um It eliminates U.S. exception for B2B mailings for non-nicotine devices as the form requires tobacco product license information, which non-nicotine businesses do not hold. And as a result, this act and subsequent confusion, many common carriers will change their policies, demand shipments of any vaporizer devices and components. So again, as part of the rulemaking process, USPS is accepting public comments in March. So... um, We'll be posting something out on social media about how you can reach out to the PC Federal Register at USPS.gov to talk about this. I'll certainly be sending in my commentary. All right. And with that, we're going to take a short break and move on to our peer reviewed science discussion. We'll be right back after this short break. I'm David Valencourt, founder and CEO of the GMP Collective. We educate and provide best practice standardization across the emerging cannabis and life science industries. By working in a collaborative manner, our clients realize unrivaled product quality and the ability to sustainably grow their business through compliance and operational efficiencies. Find us online at gmpcollective.com or shoot us an email at info at gmpcollective.com. Enjoy the show. And we're back with Rapid Fire Science, where we go around providing brief commentary and discussion about peer-reviewed science articles. And this episode, the first article we're going to discuss is entitled Requirements for Cannabis Product Labeling by U.S. State, published in Cannabis and Cannabinoid Research Online. And so what researchers did... Uh, from uh, basically from the University of Michigan and as well as Buffalo SUNY uh, looked at the cannabis product labeling regulations. And so, you know, sort of more and more states allow for medical and adult use. Um, Standardized labeling for foods and, and things like this and drugs promotes product safety. However, there doesn't appear to be standardized labeling for cannabis products. And just to jump right in, what I found was interesting is, you know, if you're new to cannabis, you might be surprised that of the states that have a cannabis program, 74% of them require an expiration date. 3% of them have a color requirement on the edible product. 100% require THC content and the manufacturer contact information. But that's the only universal requirement. Batch risks, health risks, production tracking, having a universal cannabis symbol, which the universal cannabis symbol is different in every state, so I don't know who came up with calling something that's different in every state universal, um, but things like the net weight, the cannabinoid content, nutrition panel, potency statement, storage recommendations, THC amount per serving, these are not universal requirements and vary widely between states. Even usage, usage instructions. It's uh, only in 42% of states. So, Nigam, Rod, uh, what are your thoughts on this article, or, or maybe you have some thoughts outside of this article about cannabis product labeling?
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in on that. So, I I think that this absolutely is is first of all, it's a great article. I think it really um, pulled together a lot of disparate information in a really tightly formed. You know, they even had a graph of what states um, showed what on their on their labels. But it's it's an illustration in stark. It's a stark illustration, I should say of the fact that we don't have federal legalization and normally the FDA would provide what's on the label and there you have it. If you want to add additional stuff that's not in violation, great. If you don't, that's great too. But instead we have, you know, every single state's got its own regulations on, on what needs to go and what should go and why and here and how. And that's going to change ultimately. So we have this this patchwork of regulations that are, that are popping up that people are getting compliant to and, and, and using a lot of resources to, um, to put together, and that's all going to change. And it's maddening and frustrating. Uh, one little anecdotal piece you know, I, I did a, um, a sort of a mini tour out west of about a year and a half ago, uh, you know, doing some conferences and talks and whatnot. And I remember, you know, it was crazy to walk into a dispensary A in Oregon and see what they required. And then walk into, our, I specifically remember going somewhere in Denver, and I, th- I think it was Denver, where there's so much stuff that had to be on the label that they had to actually take this adhesive tape with these printouts to wrap around the product. By the time you walked out the door, you couldn't even tell what you had because it had all this stuff on it. You had to peel off to get to the product itself. It, it's just crazy.
0: It sounds like something <laughs> yeah. out of a, a Charlie Chaplin movie. If you went to buy a product, it was just a big ball of stickers <laughs> just wrapped around yes. it.
1: Exactly.
2: Um, Well, yeah, and this uh, has been really hard for product producers. It's like, I remember July of 2018, um, this is when there was new packaging laws that went into effect in California. And so basically, these producers had, I think it was like 30 days to have their packaging updated. Otherwise, they would have to fire sell all their products. So from headsets, and when we were looking at the data, we could see this massive dip in July of 2018 that then started to go up immediately the next month. But that dip was the result of all of these repackaging laws and people having to straight fire, sell, or remove products from shelves. So this is a very burdensome thing for operators when they're already making very, very slim margins. And it's just another thing that's adding into you know, a, a challenge in them building business at this standpoint in the industry, which is why I think we've seen a lot of companies over the last you know 18-month period, um, unfortunately, you know, leave the market and no longer be around. Yep
0: one of the challenges of labeling products is actually ensuring people understand what is on the label. And there was actually a study done on um, cannabis consumers and non-users about the universal symbol and what it means. And only five out of 40 users from Colorado could identify what it was for. Like there's a government marijuana leaf on my product. That probably means it's regulated by the federal government, right? Like they are, there was such a, it was, it was really surprising, even users of these products couldn't comprehend what some of these th- the things were on the label and the dosage information. I mean, in some states, there's so many warnings that you, it obscures the dosing information and other practical information. Um, but, you know, Nigam, I want to give you a chance to comment on this before we move to um, our, our next article on how psychedelics work
3: totally so um uh one thing jocelyn i i actually started in california shortly after that thing you were saying and there was like a lot of relabeling there was a lot of like product that was never gonna get it was in it was packaged someone spent money on it but it was never gonna get sold you know and Mm -hmm. it was it was a weird time yeah i agree with that Mm -hmm. with that memory um also i've just been sitting here uh just literally uh as as i've been listening to jocelyn and rod talk about it and i just pulled some like cannabis products out of my drawer um, and I'm just like reading that. I'm in, I'm in California. And one thing that really stuck out to me here was that they're saying there's only two things that 100% of the states have THC content and manufacturing contact. Those are, that's pretty important stuff, especially the manufacturing contact, I think is good because, like, what if there's a defect? What if there's a, um, unanticipated event or feeling or whatever, right? And I'm not saying the manufacturer should be responsible for every end user, but that contact, it seems kind of meaningful, right? And um, I I just pulled three products out of my drawer. One of them does have an email for support at company that that's manufacturing and putting us on the market. And I think that's great. I think that inspires consumer confidence. I'm just like you would say on any CPG product in the universe. If you have an issue, if you want us to replace this product, call us here. Tell us what's wrong. We'll do right by you. That's how that's how companies try to do it. And of course, I understand people are struggling to like, you know, uh, get things off the ground in the can of space. It's a new area. So uh, I'm not trying to be harsh on anyone, but I'm just noticing that, you know, just like having a license number or something a little bit or, or a website that's not taking you directly to like support is um it's it's not necessarily quite the same as contact you know manufacturer contact to me means someone on the other end is going to help you or is like ready to reply to that so um just a, a other quick thought um there's a couple tables sometimes i wish we had a a, a more visual um medium to to share some of this stuff maybe maybe in like a presentation soon we can share some of these um there's a couple really great tables in this paper table one proportion of states requiring label content
0: i thought was interesting i wish they would have put the state number instead of like a percent so it's like thc content proportion of states 100 percent. i'm like you know but then it starts to get into weird things like color requirement i assume that's like washington state's requirements is three percent of states so is that one state is that two states you know i'm kind of kind of guessing um, how point. many states it is yeah uh and then they have that interesting diagram that sort of gives you a visual data representation of Looking at consistencies with these kind of gray and white boxes, and it almost looks like there's this gray box that's slowly dissolving, like a character in like Infinity War, like at the end when Thanos snaps his fingers. It's like the cannabis laws are dissolving. It's like some states <laughs> there's a lot of gaps. It's like I, I, still, I think there's three things. Nick, I just push back, and then I want want you to finish your your sure. comment. Is I'm actually, absolutely agree. THC content, the stuff that will get you impaired should be absolutely labeled on there. And who to call when you are impaired. <laughs> that should be on there. Like if you need to talk to somebody or talk to a company about the product. And the third thing, which I feel like is is it could be a life or death thing for some people, is the allergen list. Like, come on, how how difficult is it? Like, you know, you know out of state use is illegal. I, okay, that's kind of implicit in a cannabis product. Um, that's listed at the airport too when you leave Colorado. I don't know if you need it on the package as well. But you know, definitely, I feel like allergen should be not forty-five percent of states; it should be one hundred percent. Like, this seems like a weird dodge there that that would somehow be missed. Um, but yeah, I, I really, I really found this to kind of be a, as Rod said, it this was a not an easy task for public health researchers to corral all this information because, as we've talked about one of our earlier episodes, the we, when we had the author of the universal symbol review paper for edible products. He couldn't publish all the versions of the universal symbol because some states don't release what it is, so no one can go on the website and see what the universal symbol for marijuana looks like because they're afraid people will use it, um, and I guess also afraid people will know what it means. So, uh, but anyway, uh, round out your comments and let's move on to the yeah. the next.
3: Story. Yeah, no, happy, happy to move on quickly. But just, uh, Jayhan, I think you made so many valid points. Um, I guess the thing I was saying about the diagram that I like, the table too, is it does just kind of show these like, it, it just is like a good visual representation. You can understand in a matter of 30 seconds or a minute which states are doing more on these labeling requirements versus other states. So that's that's kind of good. But yeah, I think uh, we, we could talk about this for an hour, but we probably should go to the next story or the yeah. next study, right?
0: And just for the listener, you know, if you're just reading from left to right, you right, you look at Colorado, Washington State, they seem to be doing the most in the labeling area. Then you get down to like Vermont and Rhode Island and, and like New Jersey and it just it just looks like they're they like they're failing a test. I mean <laughs> <laughs> the way this is shown, it's right. like, you know, um, but it'll be interesting to see what happens when the powers of the FDA are triggered upon cannabis uh, legalization nationally and and what sticks and what doesn't stick. And, and I think there's going to be a lot more simpler and straightforward ways, although I will say I do occasionally get a chuckle when I'm grocery shopping and, you know, I bought a, a thing of sugar the other day. And it said on the panel, the nutritional panel. I don't know why I looked at a nutritional panel for sugar, but it said serving size, twenty eight grams. And then the only thing listed on the nutritional panel was sugar, twenty eight grams. I was like, <laughs> didn't know what I was expecting <laughs> with that one. Um, all right, I have thank one you so last much. On oh this. yeah, so please, please go to, ahead. No, no. To
2: close it out on like a positive note with labeling. Um, you know, like, okay, so in California, I think this is even more important in any Appalachian based um, market, right? So, like as a customer, um, I wanna know is this from Humble? Is this from Mendo? Just like we have in the wine industries, right? So, this is very important. And then the second piece of this that I think is really important from labeling is equity. There's a bunch of equity brands now. And so, there's a conversation today about creating a universal symbol for, and this is just for California. But for any equity brand. And again, as a customer, like I'm very conscious of where my dollars go. I support many of the equity brands living here in Oakland. And I want to know this. And so they are working on, you know, building this out right now. And so I'm just very excited for California doing this. So I think California is kind of leading the way in, in um, some of this labeling.
3: And and that can matter too. Like we think about when nationwide comes, you know, are people in Texas gonna to want to smoke that Mendo cannabis? I think they might or that oh, humble yeah. cannabis. I think they might.
0: Yeah, or, or maybe if we wanna save the environment, people are gonna to want to choose outdoor cultivated spots that are, you know, responsible, sustainable, and equitable partners in the industry. So I think that's in a it's a brilliant point, Jocelyn. I actually let's create a universal symbol that might actually help consumers make a decision. Um, that is a really cool idea. Awesome. Well, now on to other uh, cool ideas. I would love to share this current opinion article by Robin Art Harris, who published a, a sort of opinion piece out of the Center for Psychedelic Research from Oxford in the UK entitled, How Do Psychedelics Work? Uh, and this is not, how do they turn you into a dragon? How do they make your ancestors appear to guide you through the ages? This is a straightforward, fairly easy to understand piece. Um, you know, psychedelics are reawakening an interest in, in, in different fields of science and the general public but again it's i always like going back to fundamentals just how does this work and you know if you can't explain something simply you probably don't understand what's happening so uh, you know Nigam, i want to give you the chance i know this is something you were talking about on clubhouse uh, earlier this week um, as you're talking every week about psychedelic research on clubhouse but how do psychedelics work? What are they, when they're trying to link the various scales of action, um, what's what what's one of like the kind of the molecular mechanisms that they're looking at here?
3: Yeah, so I, I want to speak to two things and, and I'll keep them both brief. So one is this thing about pharmacology, right? So when you put a substance in your body, what uh, receptors is it interacting with to uh, achieve a certain like downstream effect, this thing we call the biochemical cascade. So literally put your molecule in your body, in different cells in your body, in your brain, or in your heart, in your skin, or whatever you have these receptors that allow things to interact uh, with your biological system. And there's a lot, a lot, a lot of different kind of receptors. Um, but uh, so for our classically defined psychedelics, LSD, psilocybin, uh, 2C class, mescaline, these kind of classic psychedelics, uh, DMT, classic psychedelics, right? they're interacting with the 5-HT2A receptor, the serotonin receptor, right? Now, um, there's other serotonin receptors, and then there's just a lot of different types of receptors. So for example, like uh, ketamine that people are calling a psychedelic doesn't interact with 5-HT2A serotonin receptor. It interacts with other receptors. Um, So there's kind of that aspect of what is a psychedelic how do psychedelics work so on the pharmacology side on the biochemical side it really has to do with what receptor you interacting with what is the level of action at that receptor because there's differentials like kind of the potency you can think of it as and then um, what happens downstream the what we call the biochemical cascade so after that initial receptor interaction what happens next within the body and um just uh if you're not familiar google biochemical cascade really amazing stuff so um that's one thought so so they're kind of uh talking about that here and i just want to give a little receptor talk for the audience because i think that's important um the other thing is that they're talking a lot about um in this article the kind of like summation is that the way uh some of this like therapy from psychedelics is working is that people are experiencing this like relaxation or this like release of their hard uh felt beliefs that maybe tie even subconsciously tie into their excuse me their addictions or their um other unhealthy mental cycles that lead to depression and stuff like this right so i think um I think they make a good point. I think what they're saying is a, is a decent theory, but I always, when people toss out these kind of theories, I always feel the need to like highlight that there's just like I was saying earlier about flipping the coin over. You can flip the coin over and just because you take a psychedelic doesn't mean it's going to ease your thoughts or beliefs. It could harden your thoughts or beliefs. It really matters. Like what is your state of mind? What is your state of mind when you go into it? What is your full experience? So I'm recognizing the theory they're putting forth here as a reasonable theory, but it's not It's not all of it. There's other facets. There's other ways this thing can go. So those are some of my top-level thoughts.
0: Yeah, I, I love that, Nigam. You know, when you talked about the, the, these cascades, and one of the things the article talks about is the role of the serotonin 2A receptor. But then they talk about all these different um, models and theories like the system disintegration and desegregation is a key principle of action the entropic brain hypothesis disruption at various scales you know the entropic brain meets predictive processing um, you know the tightened beliefs in response to uncertainty model the relaxed beliefs under psychedelics model um, and, and so they're kind of, you know, the, the toward a unified mechanistic model. Like, There's all these different models and areas that people are trying to explain sort of these fantastical events. Meanwhile, researchers are like, if we give someone a drug that blocks serotonin receptors, they don't get these fantastical effects. So there's these, like, light switch mechanisms. And then there's all these, like, other models that people are trying to explore. Um, and there's this beautiful, like, uh, figure one they have, where each dot on this circle, it's a circle, and it has all these different colored dots. And then there's like lines sort of connecting these circles, these little little hyperbolas. And when you look at a placebo drug, and and it represents brain activity, and there's just like, you know, it's lightly colored, lightly drawn. And then when you look at the one under psilocybin, it's just like, holy cow, there's a lot more brain communication, a lot more areas of the brain. Um, So... You know, i just like to go back, you know, to Rod or Jocelyn, if you had any comments um, sort of on this, you know, this is a global view of this article, a 30,000-foot view um, th- that you would like to share.
1: I'm happy to share. I, this article, <clears throat> in, in many ways, was, was beyond my pay grade, being a peer-reviewed science article about neuroscience and specific to, to psychedelics. Uh, but this has been something that's fascinated me for years, not only the psychedelic component, but just how the brain works and what's the nature of consciousness. And I'm going to read a sentence. It's kind of a follow-up from what Nigam was talking about uh, that that really kind of brought it home to me in a lot of ways. It says, it's a remarkable testimony to science and nature that the effects of these compounds, just meaning the classical psychedelics, which include the triggering of deeply profound, potentially life-changing existential experiences, uh, can be traced to an initial action at the molecular level, specifically um, 5H2AR, and it's a grounding truth for those liable to metaphysical, supernatural perspectives on psychedelics, that if this receptor is blocked, none of their fantastical effects um, can occur. And, that you know, so, so here, you know, people are experiencing, myself included, these existential um, experiences, very profound. But yet, if you block that receptor, none of it happens. Later in the paper, they, they talk about the, you know, this integration. I don't know if they use that term, but sort of the post-psychedelic you know, where you meditate on the experience, whether it's actual meditation or whether it's talking with the counselors, whether it's just writing down in notes, what your experience meant. And it seems to me that that is kind of the key to the, the medical piece. You know, you, you drop acid at some crazy party, have a bad experience, wake up the next day feeling almost hung over. That's not a medical experience. On the other hand, if you have a, an intentional, you know, where you, um, experience where you go in, you sit down, you're, you're with someone or a group of people that you intend to Get to something deep, and then you talk about it afterwards. That's where the medicine um, comes into play. And so, sure, we have this this specific receptor, this this biochemical cascade that occurs that allows the experience to happen. But it's incumbent upon the experience, or to, um, to 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 follow through with that to get a medical benefit. So, I think that's what makes psychedelics unique among all medicines and compounds.
0: Yeah, Rod, and I think you summed up nicely. You know, this is a brief article that provides a broad overview and kind of just the current thinking of, of brain activity of psychedelics, from like the hey, you hit this switch, this happens, to all these other areas, um, and even sort of a uh, looking at all these different conditions and just kind of mentioning like, hey, we have these, you know, the potential of psychedelics and depression looks pretty good, but then there's other stuff with like, you know only anecdotal evidence and some of these anecdotal reports like ayahuasca to treat eating disorders, which is kind of wild to me because it involves so much purging, (laughs) taking that, (laughs) Um, but maybe there's there's some overlap there, Um, you know, and and talking about, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder, you know, end of life, existential distress, um, addictions. These are stories we're hearing more and more and more that are associated with not necessarily, like you said, Rod, the, the acute experience but what happens afterward how do you think about how do you process what meaning do you make out of that experience um you know jocelyn is is there anything that that you'd like to share from this article any thoughts about psychedelics yeah
2: i mean i'm just going to build off of what rod was saying and also um what Nigam was saying just about i guess intent right like Again, I'm going to bring in my own personal experience on this, having tried multiple psychedelics and use them in both a recreational as well as a spiritual, uh, internal kind of way. Um, it, I think, is very much dependent on what your intent is going into that experience. You know, if you're going to a concert and just, you know, having other things a part of that experience then that's going to be what your experience is. If you're going into it, and this is why I think when people go to ayahuasca and they're going with whatever thing that they're dealing with, I don't think it's actually a different... um, I don't think it matters what psychedelic you choose. I think it's more so what you're going into that experience trying to get out of it. So as someone, again, who's used multiple of them, going into it with the same mindset of I'm going into this because I'm trying to explore myself, I end up always having the experience that I'm essentially wanting, whether it's a, good, a positive experience or a very hard experience. It's Either way, my perspective going into it is I'm going to explore me. So I still end up getting what I want from it. And then I think people can address whatever thing that they're wanting to address, whether it's um, you know an eating disorder or whether it's OCD or anxiety. It doesn't I don't know that the issue really matters. I think it's more, are you as a person willing to look at yourself? Are you willing to face yourself? And if you are, then whether it's a positive or negative experience, you're facing yourself. Not everything in life is going to be great. right? There's We deal with hard things as human beings. And so as long as you're willing to be a part of that, then you can there's many different types of psychedelics that are going to give you that.
0: I like the personal touch. Thank you, Jocelyn. Um, Absolutely. Intent is very, very important. And I I would not advise, you know, I'm not a a clinician, but I would not advise anyone to pursue psychedelics without having a a clear intent. Um, Rod, um, I'd like to give you a chance to respond before we close out and go to the game. Yeah, sure.
1: Well, you know, I, we started this this podcast today talking about psychedelics and the, and the IP space and the land grab. And you've got, you know, the the the, the idea that, that now capitalism is bumping up against some of the, 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 the beliefs that tend to emerge with people who take psychedelics. And, you know, what can we learn from, from cannabis IP land grab? Well, interestingly, in my experience with cannabis – um, in, in in the business space is that I, I started off with a lot of you know true believers in cannabis itself, and, and fortunately a, a lot of those true believers are still are still here. But at some point the 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 business side, the Wall Street, sort of came in there, and it, it's not uncommon at all for me to talk with, um, with with people who have who are their whole life is in the cannabis industry right now, but who have never used or certainly don't use regularly cannabis, and and that's caused. Uh, a culture clash that that we've seen and that's that's still being reconciled. I think that that culture clash is going to be um, significantly larger with psychedelics. So you have you know it's it's almost impossible if we, as we've seen today to talk about psychedelics at all without relating to these personal experiences, like Jocelyn was talking about. You know, and and we're talking about intention and we're talking about spirituality and and states of consciousness um, just by bringing up psychedelics. And when that begins to and it's beginning to to begin to to interact with with Wall Street and, and people who who don't have never used psychedelics and or don't ever intend to, they just see it, see a buck to be made. I think we're gonna we're gonna see some some difficult um, lines, the clashes, and lines being drawn, and it'll be really interesting to watch how that plays out in the long arc.
0: Well said. all well said. All right. Thank you so much. We're gonna take a short break, um, and we'll come back with our game for this episode. At Mark and Aurora, we understand that navigating the investment landscape in cannabis and psychedelics is complex. We utilize our in-house expertise in science to support investors and innovators. Reach out to us to start a conversation about how we can help guide your investment decisions and prepare your next venture for success. And we're back. Welcome to today's game. Today, our group will be playing for the grand prize of helping to expand scientific thought. Today, we'll be testing out a new game on you, listener, called Guess Which Politician Was High When They Said This? So, I'm going to read an actual quote said recently by uh, someone you know, someone from a state government. And then I'll read some options. And I don't think they were really high, but they were definitely probably on something. Um, so, the quote is, If you legalize marijuana, you're going to kill your kids. But let me repeat, if you legalize marijuana, you're going to kill your kids. Was it A, the governor of South Dakota, B, the governor of Nebraska, or the governor of Mississippi, maybe it was the mayor of Palm Springs, or possibly the superintendent of Florida's public school system? I'll read the quote again in the choices. Uh, panelists and then i want to hear your thoughts Uh, if you legalize marijuana you're gonna kill your kids was was this governor of south dakota governor of nebraska governor of mississippi mayor of palm springs or the superintendent of florida's public school system
3: To, to clarify that's palm springs florida not palm springs california right
1: I
0: was gonna say Palm Springs, California,
3: but oh, we're Palm Springs, California. Oh wow, okay. This,
1: I, wow, okay. <laughs> uh, I, I'd love to jump oh. in if I can. I don't. I have not heard that quote, but I would say, if I were just a guessing guy, which I am, that it was the governor of South Dakota. She said so many idiotic things about cannabis generally uh, that that just wouldn't surprise me at all. It'd be par for the proverbial course. So,
0: so we have one vote for. South Dakota.
3: Wait, and it right? says if you legalize cannabis you will kill your kids, right? Is a quote. Yeah, if if you, you
0: legalize marijuana.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So You're going
0: to kill your kids. And if it makes a difference, they spelled marijuana with a j.
3: I'm just going to toss it out. I think. So if it's Palm Springs, California, cannabis is already been legalized for some time Florida medical's been legal for some time so the first three seem maybe more true I'm just kind of trying to narrow it down
0: so you're saying South Dakota seems reasonable governor of Nebraska governor of Mississippi but the mayor of Palm Springs California probably is not saying wackadoo statements that aren't based in science right <laughs> well the
3: reason I was asking is because like cannabis is like big business in Palm Springs California it's like it's like the desert down there is like popping right now so mm-hmm. um I don't know. I see Jocelyn nodding. Jocelyn, what do you think?
2: <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to go for a wild guess here and say the governor of Nebraska, but I have no real selection on that other than, yeah, process of elimination and agree. Business is booming in the valley. So I can't imagine yeah. the mayor there. So then, saying okay, that. just
3: to round it out so we get a winner, well, unless something weird's happening, then let me say the governor of Mississippi <laughs> so that we have like one. We've each selected one. <laughs> nice. <laughs> right?
0: All right. Well, it's in. We have one vote for South Dakota, Rod Kite. Nigam's going with the governor of Mississippi. And Jocelyn's going with the governor of Nebraska. So the issue has been in front of lawmakers for the fifth consecutive year. And right after it um, you know, fell, following a ruling by the Nebraska Supreme Court, old Pete Ricketts uh, came out um, and said... Uh, This is a dangerous drug that will impact our kids. If you legalize marijuana, you're going to kill your kids. That's what data shows from around the country. Uh, He did not share the data (laughs) or could point to a published source. But, you know, the data is really big and he got the best data there is. And no one has better data than he has. Um, So there you go. Congratulations, Jocelyn. You you nailed it out of the park. (laughs) Woo! (laughs) So, um, all right well that's our show thanks for clicking tapping swiping or however you're hearing this we appreciate it thank you to our trusty audio engineer this show is edited and mixed by Joe Leonardo and thank you to our podcast cover artist Selena Lee creating custom artwork for each episode check out her artwork all right thank you